Hello and welcome to Interval, the Norwich Theatre Royal podcast. With a new episode releasing each month, this show will bring you exclusive news, views, interviews and behind the scenes content. We will have the latest information for shows and events at Norwich Theatre Royal, Norwich Playhouse and our Learning and Participation Centre, Stage 2. If you're interested in the performing arts in Norfolk, then this is the podcast for you. In this month's episode, we get a little help from our friends. We hear from the dancers in the Beatles-inspired production, Pepperland. We also spoke to Nigel Pearce to learn more about the impact of the Fab Four in Norfolk. We caught up with Jane Asher, starring in a production of Noel Coward's final play, A Song at Twilight. And finally, we're debuting a brand new feature, Stages of My Life. The first guest is poet and children's author, Murray Lucklin Young. Everyone has a favourite Beatles song. From tribute acts to stage shows, the band's legacy continues to live on. But what about a dance show? Mark Morris is hailed as the most successful and influential choreographer alive by the New York Times. The Mark Morris Dance Group is bringing us Pepperland, a unique tribute to the Sgt Pepper album. Listen to some of the dancers in production as they tell us a little bit more. First, when, when we first realized we were doing this project, Mark had us all sit down and we listened to the entire album, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was uh, really fun to do as a group to get us sort of in the mood of what was coming next. Um, and then for uh, there's a section called the blues where we're all just improvising, um, and we did a lot of... Uh, uh, videos of old blues dancing, almonds, um, these old videos from the 60s of, of people just getting groovy. Those were really fun to watch. The Beatles in the album is it's very close, I believe, to the, to the UK. Um, they're probably the most familiar, the ones that'll probably have the strongest opinion, the strongest memories, because it has so much a, a link to history and culture there. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how people will appreciate Mark's approach and Mark's, um, I don't want to say interpretation, but just his presentation of what he's decided to offer the audiences. With Mark's work, it's, um, he has a way of including a lot of popular culture, especially uh, dance history culture. Uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of natural movement and, and it's all encompassing with just moving and stepping, walking, running, um, especially in this one where we're able to gesture and communicate physically with each other. One of the reasons why I feel people should come see the show is, especially if they don't necessarily have a history or an experience in dance or even the Beatles, especially our generation, it's important for us to know what came before us. I think the show is not just about the Beatles and not just about dance. It's about the history of music, the history of culture, the history of dance. Pepperland is so full of energy and life that I think anybody would be thrilled to see it. Um, the music is has so much soul and energy. Everything about it is pretty much amazing. We wanted to find out more about the influence of the Beatles. So we spoke to Nigel Pierce, a presenter on Future Radio and 60s Guru. He told us about the impact of their music and the band's connections to the Norfolk area. They were important without being vital to start with until we heard Twist and Shout. 
um, then the whole country seemed to take them aboard. I mean, I know they'd had Love Me Do, uh, Please Please Me, and From Me To You, but in between was Twist and Shout, and that became such a powerhouse track that even though it was a cover, it's as if they owned it, it's as if they wrote it, it's as if it's theirs, and it's hard to think it came from the contour some two years earlier. That really propelled them, and I think the country just started to take to them in the most charming way because there were four mop heads with an individual side to a group talent it was slick marketing it was very professional but above all they wrote most of their own stuff so that's what really encapsulated first britain and then i believe the entire world and i do believe john it still encapsulates the world today because here we are 50 years later and there's still so much interest about the band that we have a new you have your production Pepperland we have a new film next year there's another film to be made there's another double album you know can you name me any other band or great singer for that matter going back to Glenn Miller and Sinatra that still carries the same weight I don't think so it was also that which we talked about before we came on it their reinvention as well it was the different styles of music that they they owned Rubber Soul was that defining moment when they changed um, and after that Revolver Sergeant Pepper the White Album, Abbey Road, Let It Be, were all albums that encapsulated this transonic change. They're metamorphosized into something else. And uh, I think that is why their catalogue is so vibrant. And you can do something with it every year to bring something new because you're still changing them. I mean, they were, it's an overused word, genius in the music world. But I think these four were, weren't they? Just in this ability to capture these different styles of music and do something so fantastic with them as well. I don't think they were a genius. I think they were genius S's in the sense that they were genius. They were a genius on so many levels. First of all, they wrote. They fell off each other to complement each other. You've only got to listen to it's getting better. Who else would have come up with the two lines? I've got to admit it's getting better because Lennon sang on harmonies. Well, it can't get no worse. <laughs> you know, that is total opposites set within a song. And then you've got the harmonies, the block harmonies that the Beach Boys mimicked, copied, and then the Beatles took some of the Beach Boys and put it into their own. So each of these two great bands were pushing each other. And in the end, the Beach Boys broke. Brian Johnson went into um, his decline for three years, which was very sad. But, um, yeah, then you've come through to She's Leaving Home. Who else would put an unashamed tearjerker and yet put the lead instrument as a harp? It'd never been done in pop and rock music. I think I rest my case there because if we go tripping with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, we'll be away with the fairies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and here in Norfolk particularly, they didn't perform in Norfolk and Suffolk much, but they did come here. It must have been an incredible time to have a super group like that in this area. Well, they came to Norwich um, and played the Grosvenor Ballroom, of which there is a plaque on the wall, of which I've got the live sound recording of. Um, I haven't got any film, but I have the live concert on sound. They performed at Great Yarmouth, and I have some photographs of uh, the Beatles on the pier at Great Yarmouth. And, of course, they were well down the bill then, but by the end of their stint, they'd come to second in the bill, obviously undershadowing Helen Shapiro, who really was at the top of her game then. So you're talking early 63. And then in 64, they came to Ipswich. Now, there is, uh, if you like, my Norfolk PS, The Resistance. I know it's Suffolk, but uh, they're just over the border. Um, Anglia TV have the black and white outside film. I have three minutes of them side colour. 
in my archives doing You Can't Do That. And that was shot from the crowd. So I've actually got three minutes of the Beatles in colour inside the Gaumont and Ipswich doing You Can't Do That. So they were the only times they came to Norfolk to perform. I know they came for rests and holidays and various other things, but it's their position. They attained number one selling artist position in 1964, and apart from a year, I think, in 69 and one in 78, they've kept that position ever since. And that sort of leads into my final question, which you did touch on earlier, their continual uh, interest in them, the, the passion that people still have for the Beatles, as, as you mentioned, with Pepperland going out, Let It Be is coming out on tour as well uh, later in the year. Their music doesn't die, does it? It's still, it? It's still as fresh as it was in the 60s. You've just said it. When they made Apple Records, they always said, we've got something fresh from Apple. It still is fresh. It still is vibrant. The techniques that they so painstakingly did by hand are now part of a console and a recording studio where you just push a switch. Um, to give you an example, flanging was the trick of laying one track over another and then distorting the voice through a revolving Leslie speaker. There wasn't a term for it. Lennon was explained how it worked and he said, oh, I don't know. He so. George Martin said, well, we'll call it Ken's flanger. So whenever Lennon wanted an effect with his voice, he said, let's flange it. And that's how flanging came into being. Wow. Double tracking. They were the first to do artificial double tracking because most singers, in fact all singers, if they wanted their voice double tracked before with the Beatles, they would have to sing it twice. Lennon was a great believer in, if I'm going to have a vocal high, it's going to be one take. So they invented a system whereby they could take the signal from the pickup head, move it half a second and play it back. So it became ADT, which is artificial double tracking. Now it's used all over the world and has been ever since. So there's so much that they did that is now standard. Yet they had to do it by hand before you had a computer. Now you push a switch and people tend to forget that this due to the Fab Four. I'm not saying they did everything, but there is so much they did do that is now common practice. And uh, I think that is their best testament. I mean, they're still in, um, inspiring. They're still invigorating. As you say, John, correctly, their songs never date. They're never out of time. And I can't think, and I'm being constructive here, if I look at Dylan, if I look at Queen, even the Rolling Stones, the Eagles, you name it, all of their songs are great, but they perfunctory stand out in a moment of time. They don't transcend every years, every year, every generation. I work with youngsters wishing and hoping to go on a musical career. And these people are 16, 17 and 18. And you ask them, where do you want to play? I play Beatles. That to me is it. You're five generations on and yet teenagers are still knocked out by them. I think that is the best testament that any group can have because uh, are they going to be invigorated to another fifth generation in five years' time, which makes them ten generations? I believe they will. Pepperland runs from Tuesday the 23rd to Wednesday the 24th of April. A Song at Twilight is the final work of Noel Coward before he died. Back in episode eight, we spoke to Simon Callow, who will be taking on the role of Hugo Latimer. Backstage at the Cambridge Arts Theatre, we got the chance to speak to Jane Asher before she went on stage. Jane told us about her mysterious character, her relationship with Simon, and why audiences are loving this rarely seen piece. 
A Song of Twilight is the last play that Noel Coward ever wrote. Prior to that, he had written a number of plays that hadn't been that successful. And I think there was a bit of a feeling, maybe even within himself, that he'd kind of, you know, had his time and was not going to produce anything very interesting anymore. But then he wrote this trio of plays, one of which is Song of Twilight, called A Suite in Three Keys, all named after songs. The other two are called Shadows of the Evening and Come Into the Garden Maud. And they were all set in the same hotel suite. Supposedly this very beautiful, very elegant hotel uh, in Switzerland overlooking Lake Lausanne, which in fact was based on a real hotel that is still there uh, because our designer, partly to get inspiration, but partly because he happened to be there anyway, went and had a look at this hotel. You can rent a suite still, something like two and a half, three thousand a week, I think. (laughs) So, uh, you know, handy little uh, holiday place. Uh, But in in this play, um, our hero, if you can call him that, Hugo Latimer is a famous writer, written a great many best-selling novels, obviously deeply successful, and one play at least. I don't think it appears he's written anymore, certainly the one. And he lives in this suite for a certain few weeks of every year, so clearly extremely well off. He's married to a, a German wife, been married for 20 years. And as the play opens, we learn pretty quickly that he is expecting a visit from a lover from 40 years ago who is called Carlotta, who is an actress. Again, we learn pretty quickly that her career has perhaps not been very successful the last few years. It's kind of petered out a bit and she's pretty much retired. And he's clearly very nervous, sort of anticipatory, but nervous. Absolutely no idea why she's coming to see him after all this time, somewhat out of the blue, and has no idea how she'll look. Will she be old and decrepit? And will she be still, she was obviously a woman full of energy, and will she still be like that? And so on. So that sort of sets the scene. And Carlotta is, when she arrives, is a very interesting character. And as the play progresses, you kind of get glimmers of what she might be there for, but nothing very definite. And this is one of those plays where you can't give away too much or it spoils some of the big moments of the evening. But there is some secret, of course, as in all good plays, there is a a secret that will emerge and you begin to understand what she's after. Although it's, it's in a slightly roundabout way. And interestingly, she does eventually, I think, sort of get what she was after, but not through her own devices. It it comes through a very different route towards the very end of the play. So it's really interesting. It's got those sort of cliffhanging moments, those surprise moments, and some fantastic dialogue. And indeed, it was very successful when he wrote it. So it's lovely to think the last play he wrote, he got wonderful success. And he afterwards said, because these three plays he wrote were all set in this same hotel suite, he said of Neil Simon's Plaza Suite, which was written later, what a clever idea. Where could he have got it from? (laughs) (laughs) So I think he always felt quite rightly that he had initiated that idea. And there seems to be quite a lot of Coward himself in the character, I think, as well, isn't there? There is a great deal of him, although people sort of assume, and it's obvious why when you see it, that it's all written about him and his life, but it wasn't. It was much more based on Somerset Maugham. And if you look a little bit at Somerset Maugham's personal life and career, you can see there are a lot of very distinct echoes, and it clearly was very largely based on him, the original idea. And I think Carlotta was based on... He read something about, and it wasn't Somerset Maugham, some, some other 
older gentleman who was visited by uh, an ex-lover from years ago and she was so kind of full of life and vibrant and jolly and whatever that it exhausted this guy completely this visit because he was sort of winding down and there is a, a lot of that element in this play and in that Hugo has decided to sort of slow down and become the grand old man as she puts it uh, whereas she is absolutely she is fighting it every inch of the way against the years. As you say, I don't want to give too much over. I was reading, I haven't actually read the play, but I was reading around the play. Cobbs is quite interesting because when she first emerges, you think she's out in a way for what she can get, but there's a lot more to her and a lot more layers to it without giving too much away. There, well, is, there is a lot, a lot more to her. And it, it, yes, you might easily think she's after money because she hasn't been doing very well, and he indeed thinks that's quite likely. In fact, it turns out she's been married three times, not particularly because she's flighty or whatever, but uh, because two of the husbands died. Uh, but she is divorced or, or separated from her third husband, but he still clearly plays, pays her a lot of alimony, and she's clearly very rich. I mean, we, we play her dripping in jewels. <laughs> if they were real, I would be extremely rich. So they're, they're, assuming Carlotta's ones are real, uh, she's clearly not after money. Um, so it takes a while to find out what she's after. And yes, I think she rightly says, you might, even when you learn what she's after, you might think it's for her own relatively selfish reasons to kind of put something right that she feels was done wrong to her. But it isn't, it's broader than that. She just feels, and maybe we all get this feeling sometimes, to, one needs to fight for something to be put right for its own right, you know, in its own right, not because it's going to benefit you particularly. I think she does feel that's what she's doing. I think there's a lot of self-interest in it as well, in that she feels she had a, a terrible thing done to her many years ago. But I think she likes to think, and there's a lot of truth in it, that it's a, a broader one than that. She feels she's sort of on a slight crusade for something important. A little bit of a sort of lost opportunity, more so with Hugo, in a sense, as well, but things that perhaps should, not just things that should have happened. Oh, absolutely, that, that would have made his life much mm. better and much happier. And I think that's, yeah, very, very true. And that is very poignant at the end of the play. There's a, there's a wonderful moment when I've left, when the play ends with a little couplet that is extremely moving and I think you, th you realise he realises what she was on about and for the first time is sort of facing a lot of facts about his life and how he should have behaved. Well that's the power of Carol, there's the wonderful dialogue and, and the comedy in it but there's always a real poignancy in his work. Yes and in this one maybe more than some, I mean we, I suppose to be honest, we wondered how will this go down because people of course come to account slightly expecting hay fever, blithe spirit, whatever it may be. And it's got all that in it, but it does get a lot deeper. You can feel it's an older man writing this play. It's a man of experience and great heart. I mean, we found out so much more about Nilkard and how the sort of flippant exterior hid something far more deep and sometimes dark and, and definitely very moral, I think. Um, and you, you see a lot of that come out in the play. But yeah, I mean, people come around and say, oh, it's so funny, you know? And we were thrilled, because you can't tell when you're rehearsing. You really can't tell, is this coming across the way we think it should and, and can? And it clearly does. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? But people really seem to love it. And, and uh, people I would have thought would have been much more fans of, I don't know, musicals or thrillers or whatever, just think it's just wonderful. So it's obviously very enjoyable, as, as well as being a beautifully written and I think quite important play. Well, I suppose we can all relate with things we wish we'd done 
in the past. We and, sure and, yeah, can. <laughs> we sure can. And I can tell you're loving being part of the plane. And do you particularly enjoy doing CAD? I know you've done some CAD plays. I do, I do. I love it. And this one is not quite your usual clipped, witty uh, repartee. There's a lot more to it than that and a lot of depth. But at the same time, there's some wonderfully funny moments. And Yeah, I love doing it. I mean, who, who doesn't love doing anything that's well written? And he is a terrific writer. And working with Simon as well, which must be a joy. <laughs> it's absolute. I mean, it's a joy. And with Jessica. Uh, not that I'd have that much with her, but um, it's an extremely happy company. Actors always say that, but this is genuinely. And with Simon, I knew him quite a bit socially, and we very nearly worked together several times, either with him directing or... And we just could never get the dates together. But to, over this rehearsal period, I mean, two things. A, he is one of the nicest people I can remember working with, genuinely. He laughs all the time, and he's incredibly supportive. You could tell him anything, say anything. You know, some actors get frightfully sniffy if you say, you know, when you say that, I'd find it easier if. He's absolutely open to anything, as I like to think I am. It's it's all helpful if a company can work together. But he is also genuinely a man who knows more things about more things than (laughs) almost anyone I've ever met. I found that when I spoke to him a few weeks ago. Oh, grief. I mean, his knowledge is fantastic, particularly anything to do with the arts. He would say himself, music is the thing he is most professional to. I mean, his knowledge is astonishing. But he, he... bears his knowledge lightly if you know what I mean yes, he doesn't yeah. you never feel he's showing off just somehow in rehearsals these sort of extraordinary facts would emerge you know during a discussion about something or other he's just amazing not only all the stuff he knows but the fact he can remember it and, and <laughs> fish it out from the back yeah. of his brain so quickly whereas I can you know forget what day it is all the time <laughs> so it's fascinating he's just so in that way he's enthralling to be with you sort of feel you just sit at his feet listening all the time and you touched on this a moment ago, but I was really interested to ask about the audience reaction to it as well. Is it, a, a, when you're sort of looking at it as far as you can see, is it a wide range of ages and different people who are coming? It's, it's not just for the sort of coward devotees. Oh, no, no, definitely not. No, 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 not at all. As I say, <clears throat> as I say, I've been surprised by the breadth of the kind of people we've had coming to see it and how much it's enjoyed. And I think we were surprised by how many laughs there are in it. Again, you can't tell when you're rehearsing. There are a lot of laughs, but there are also many people who come back and say at the end I was in tears which is lovely because in a way you should be it's a sort of um, a life that's been regretted in a way which we all as you say can Mm. identify with are you enjoying being out on the road and and touring generally in a different place every week yes I am I, I, I really enjoy that I mean I'm commuting a lot of the time I'm commuting from Cambridge where we are now obviously Norwich I won't so I'm looking forward to that yes it's lovely it's I love hotels I've I've never minded staying (laughs) in a hotel it's a treat and you know who doesn't love not having to empty the dishwasher or you know (laughs) clean the floor it's uh, it's a treat Uh, and seeing different places yes I mean Cambridge just walking here now past King's College and all that it's so fabulous I I love it so it's yeah it's great fun a song at twilight runs from Monday the 8th to Saturday the 13th of April. The Stages of My Life is a brand new feature, talking to artists performing at the Norwich Theatre Royal, Norwich Playhouse, and Stage 2. In this series, we aim to learn a little bit more about the crucial moments along the way that helps these artists develop into who they are today. This episode features the fantastic poet, Murray Lucklin Young. Let's take a listen. Murray, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Journey okay to Norwich today? Beautiful weather, comfortable seats. Yep, yep. 
Can't complain. Are you ready? I'm ready. For I'm the ready. first question. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is stage presence. Yes. Who or what has been your greatest influence in the performing arts? Wow. That's a really interesting one because I suppose you if you if you pull from earliest experiences through to stage experiences. So for me, I guess um being five years old and discovering a stack of uh, vinyl records uh, in my home, not knowing what they were and then sort of learning how to put them on and then seeing what was on them. And in there was uh, um, Prokofiev, uh, Peter and the Wolf, uh, um, narrated by Basil Rathbone, which was quite an amazing thing to hear. So it's stories with music. And then, then finding um, The Hobbit, uh, on vinyl and listening to that all the way through and then hearing stuff like the Beatles, White Album, Johnny Cash, folk stuff, but all of it telling stories. And I think that was uh, hugely influential, plus um, being read the uh, Oxford Children's Book of Rhyming Verse or Verse and uh, and hearing all of the Hilaire Belloc stuff in that and the Edward Lear and, and, and uh, enormous amounts of uh, other... Um, British authors that uh, that worked in narrative verse. So I suppose that's that's the basis of it. And then um, the influence on on actually being on stage. I think uh, there's there's been a few. I toured. I think I came to Ipswich a few years ago with uh, Julian Cope, who I thought was an amazing person to be around, just to to um, to, to see on stage and to watch somebody working amazing uh, stage charisma. I toured with um, Attila the Stockbroker, who's another famous performance poet who came from that sort of ranting 80s era and uh and i was uh, having a bit of a hard time when i talked with him so it was nice to get m mentored by someone who was older than me and had more experience mark rylance uh, asked me to write for shakespeare's globe and put me on stage there which was an amazing thing to be you know under his uh, um uh influence as well and and to, to pick up uh, things from him so to put it down into one thing it would be would be uh would be very difficult and of course then I guess you you have the you know the people that you study under. So as a student at uh, um, Salford University, I had uh, some some brilliant uh, um, teachers there as well. So it's a kind of big combination, I reckon. He says, swerving the question. <laughs> we'll get an answer one day. Yeah. Okay. So the next question: All the world's a stage. Mm. What has been your favourite place to perform? Well. It's a toss-up because the two places that I performed, and they're very similar in, in uh, strange ways, um, is Shakespeare's Globe and Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in Soho in London. And, and um, Ronnie Scott's is a very... Uh, is, is, they're both the same shape. So they're both uh, amphitheatres. And Shakespeare's Globe, I think, goes a little bit tighter because there's people just, there's people actually behind you. And Ronnie Scott's is almost there. But anything with that sort of bowl feel, it feels to me that, um, and the reason that I think I like it is because of what they, they called Shakespeare's Globe, which was the sacred O. And there's there's supposed to be something divine in, in uh, performing in these circular spaces. And for me, it feels like as a performer, you kick the energy when you come on stage and you kick it to the audience and then they kick it back. And that's the game that goes on between a performer and the audience. But in a, in a circular um, or amphitheater kind of environment, you, it's like you kick it to the left and then it goes all the way around and comes back to you. And then it starts this sort of wheel 
um, of energy, and then you can sort of stop the wheel and then start the wheel. And you can almost, if, if, you, if you're playing it right, you can almost get to the point where people visibly go, oh, when it happens. And I think from the sort of uh, Elizabethan metaphysical angle on it, then the energy sort of spirals up and is uh, accepted um, by the divine. And what is the difference between, you know, you, obviously you're a stand-up performer, but, you know, you're a poet as well. What is that difference between, you know, when you're addressing sort of an entire group or maybe as a stand-up, you're picking out one individual and feeding off that energy, you know, what is the difference between that? And, and is there any you prefer of the two? Well, it's interesting. Again, you know, you, you have to look at the, uh, the, the, the arena that you're playing in, of course. I mean, if you're doing a, a, a room, a small room with maybe 20 people in it, and, and then obviously it's a far more intimate environment, but you have to extend that intimacy to whatever um, size of uh, um, a place you're playing. So for instance, you know, I did the um, main stage at Glastonbury uh, years ago, and and you walk out onto a place and there's no back wall and you look at, you know, 10, 20,000 people in front of you. And that's, you know, I think that, that, that's, only, that's not even half full at Glastonbury, but still a lot of people. And you've got to make a communication with those people and there has to be intimacy. So how you communicate that in intimacy is, I think, best watched when you look at um, rock and roll acts uh, do it. And what if you ever go to a big space, you'll see a, a rock performer will just pump the front of the audience really, really hard until he gets some, or he, she gets something going on there. And then that slowly ripples back. But if you walk out to a big audience and you try and play the back of the room before you play the front of the room, then everything just goes wrong. So it's understanding that you've got to build that intimacy with an audience. And in, in a sort of medium sized venue, I always think I just go out and I look for the people who are into it straight away. And I, I bounce the energy back, back and forwards with them. And then you can almost see the room like a, um, like a sort of heat diagram. So you can see the places where it's, where, it's, where it's going really well and you can see people who've been dragged along by a partner or whatever and are sitting there with their arms folded. And I usually, if I, if I spot people like that, um, I, I just go for the nearest person to them um, who's having a good time and then they eventually get jealous. And, uh, <laughs> and, they, and they, they'll... So I think a performer's desire is to take is to unify an audience and a, an audience's desire is for a performer to unify the audience. So everybody wants the same thing. And I think the key for any performer, me, you know, the way I approach it is that I know when I go out, out on stage that that's what the audience want and, and, and you've got to give it to them. Okay, so the next question. Yeah. Stage fright. What has been the toughest moment of your career? Well, that's kind of, it, it's, a, it's a really tough moment actually and it was, the most terrifying thing that I've ever experienced on stage um, was, uh, I don't know which year it was, it was in the 90s. And it was when the Tea in the Park Festival was still held in Glasgow. And obviously, or not obviously, um, many people may know that the Glaswegians have a um, reputation as being an audience that will just completely destroy someone. And, uh, and I didn't know that when, <laughs> when I went there. And so my job was to go on stage in front of between 20 and 40,000 people um, between every headlining act at Tea in the Park and deliver poetry to a big, big <laughs> 40,000 Glaswegians. What kind of acts are we talking here? Um, oh, God, and Nick Cave and... Oh, no, yeah, Nick Cave and... No, Robbie Williams, Kylie Minogue... Who else was there? Terrorvision, 
Um, I'm just imagining Robbie than you. Uh, Black Grape, who essentially uh, the the Happy Mondays, and they have a sort of orc following as well. And then uh, who was the other ones? There was uh, um, I think that's you know it's good, good enough uh, cross section of who who we were uh, going on in front. Diverse of. is the word I'd use. Yeah, yeah, and um, and obviously the audience is. Uh, reflected that so that the hardcore would come to the front to be closest to the act that they they came to support and so I was pushed out on stage and I walked out there full of beans in my sort of you know mid-20s I guess at that time and uh, and walked out there and sort of held my arms up and said good afternoon Glasgow and uh, and I uh, um, and I sort of heard this chanting starting and I couldn't hear what it was and I could tell that, you know, and I was doing exactly the thing I said earlier that you shouldn't do. I was looking to the back and not the front. And I was, you know, I had no no concept of how you approach a big stage like that. And this 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 um uh, this chanting just got louder and louder and louder until am, am I allowed to swear or not? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Well, they said something equivalent to banker, uh, but with a slightly different letter at the beginning. That's what they were chanting. And I and I suddenly realised that there were twenty thousand people all chanting that to me, like banker, banker, banker. And um and I and I and and then they saw and then I realised it. And then I kind of something a spring went in my brain, and they saw it happen. And they cheered as they saw me buckle on stage. 20,000 people and and this 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 hardcore of black grape fans who looked like war orcs from the lord of the rings all with like you know and they were all they looked like they were on drugs and they were all definitely drunk and they were sort of red-faced and dehydrating monsters and i remember looking down into the crowd and thinking if i fell into this audience they would kill me and that was the point where they saw me go and and they all cheered I sort of finished the piece, went off stage and and just didn't know what to do. Just felt utterly terrified. And um, and then the backstage crew, as I walked past them, also chanted um, banker at me. And so I just I just um, sat there and just said, I can't go on. I can't go back on again. And um, and, and they said, well, you've got to because you've signed a contract. And so I, uh, I came up with a plan. I went, I, I recognized that they were all um, dehydrated. And so I took a load of bottles of mineral water on with me and just sort of held them up like, you know, feeding time for the seals or the penguins at the zoo. And then I got them all to chant. Um, I said, I said um, we're all going to chant this chant. And it was, uh, who's the banker? Who's the banker? Who's the banker in the white? And then the backstage crew came on. And they all sang it to the crowd. And suddenly I sort of made this breakthrough in Glasgow. And and, and the moral of the story, I was, I was told by the, the Glaswegian backstage crew, is this is a people's town. And you go in like that. You don't go in like that and you have to you have to make contact with the people. And so ever since then, whenever I've done a gig in Glasgow, it's gone all right. <laughs> You've won them over. I did. And then and then they said, oh, come and introduce the prodigy. So I, I went out in the evening and I stood there on stage and, and said you know, and shouted the prodigy. And and the, the, the lead singer, of the prodigy, just I, I was knocked to one side as he went in this um, giant uh, um, plastic hamster ball. Did you have you ever seen that? No. So it's like if you use the hamster ball, yeah, one of those hamster balls. Sure, yeah. Human size, huge, great thing, out over the crowd with him essentially running over the crowd's heads, and and that, that was Zorb, it. Zorb ball. Yeah. Zorbing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. with you. I'm with you. Is that what it's called? A Zorb ball. 
well, we'll, we'll find out right. after when I Google it. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so, so, so I got to do, you know, as a result of that, they came up to me after and said, would you introduce the prodigy tonight? And so, so that was the ultimate success of the whole thing. But it was the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. Did you get to go in the hamster ball? No, I didn't. I, 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 I think I'd, I'd pushed it far enough, you know. Okay. Right. So the next question, center stage. What has been the moment in your career that you feel defines you as an artist? Wow, that's a really difficult one because there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot of moments um, in there that uh, that have had um, a big effect on. Well, I suppose um, doing what I'm doing at the moment, the 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 thing that has um, defined me was from having been. Um, experience something which I don't think many other um, people in the world of poetry have experienced, which is becoming an international media story overnight, which is what happened to me in 1997, where suddenly I was on the front pages of newspapers all around the world for signing this huge record deal with EMI. Um, the, the, the backlash from that was so intense and my, um, my experience overexposure to the media was such that you know I was so I was doing a press day that I could be doing like 15 interviews and uh, and and the things that happened I won't go into it but it was it was a really you know for for a young person to go through that and was well, for me you know to go through it um was incredibly corrosive to to who I was it was also a, a huge lesson which I I still feel very grateful for but the net result of the exposure that I, I would say, suffered at the time was that I just felt that I couldn't do anything anymore. I, I couldn't write, I couldn't go on stage, I couldn't go in front of cameras. I completely lost the plot and uh, moved to a wood in Sussex and, uh, and, um, and restored a Victorian spring system. That was that was where I was at, you know. Just the height of glamour. Yeah, <laughs> just 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 working with mud and water for about a year. That's that's what I did, and just just dug holes and ran pipes to places, and was just all I could do was just be completely practical um, and physical, um, and uh, and coming out of that, and then I think what happened is I think that the thing was then Mark Rylance then called me and said, would you come and do something for Shakespeare's Globe? And I did, and, but I, you know, I was still shot. I went on stage and it was fine. I did okay, but I couldn't, I couldn't connect with the audience as well as I wanted to. And then BBC called up and said, would I start doing a, a new radio show where you had to write poetry? Um, but after that had happened, I did a performance at Ronnie Scott's where I hadn't performed, I think, for maybe two years and I walked back in there and I took a completely different attitude to performing because I my performing used to be sort of quite grandiose and theatrical and it and just went on kind of as myself and and not knowing how it was going to be to an audience of you know sold out audience of Ronnie Scott's it's only about 400 people but it was 400 people that I really you know cared about their opinion and uh, and and had it gone down badly I really don't know what what I would have done. I just walked out there and did my thing and did the best gig of my life. And I think you I think you can get it on, there's a version of um, Simply Everyone's Taking Cocaine, which is online, which you can listen to and hear the energy of, of that day. And I think just just actually being brave, I think was the thing, being, being brave and going back and, and starting again. Amazing, next question. Stagehand, 
what piece of advice would you give somebody wanting to pursue a career like yours? <laughs> Don't. Um, no. <laughs> so no, there's, a lot, no. there's a lot of avenues this could go down. No, I think it's... Uh, I, mean, I, I, I sort of jokingly say to people, um, make yourself unemployable um, because then you can't do anything else. I think what I said in the previous question is, is to be brave and to understand what's the great, the great line I used to repeat to myself, which is um, why someone else and not me? Am I, making up the, uh, am I making up the story here that other people are allowed to do this and I'm not? And if I am, why am I doing that? Because it's nonsense. So I think to actually understand that there is space for everybody if you want to do something. So the idea that, you know, that there's this sort of exclusive area that certain people are and certain people aren't allowed to be in, again, is nonsense. And so to be, to be aware of the, the, the narrative um, and the internal dialogue that one is creating about what one is doing and casting that to one side and just saying, right, I'm going to go for this and I'm going to be brave and I'm going to do it. Um, I think that's on the uh, sort of psychological level. On the physical level, um, Things are easier and they're more difficult uh, these days, I think, because, of course, we have all of uh, the, the, the online world and people can communicate their information um, uh, more freely and, and, and certainly more easily. Yet there is a lot more information. So there's the, how do you cut through the, uh, the chatter is, is the next thing. And I still think that uh, and I think the reason that poetry is building at the moment uh, on, on the level that it is, is that uh, is that live performance is something that never goes out of style. And, and people just love being in the room with with the person who's you know, delivering something in a unique um, moment. Um, which will never happen again. And that's the beauty of live performance. And so I would say, yes, you know, you can, you can get your work uh, packaged. Um, it's good to blog. It's good to put stuff out there on social media. It's good to, to, to tick all those boxes. Um, but if you can, and this is not, you know, saying everybody has to be a performer as well as a, as a, a writer. Um, but if, if one is a performer or a writer, to do it live, and to, and to just go and do as many things as possible, and to, and 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 to understand that um, humiliation is part of the business, <laughs> and there will be bad nights. You know, there will be. There will be. There'll be times when something goes wrong, and uh, and and the thing is, that's where the bravery comes in: is to just go back and do it again, and to do it again. And from those uh, moments, because they say, for for without um, uh, for without, how can we understand? How, um, without failure, how can we truly understand success? So you've got to fail. And so when you do fail, it means you're closer to succeeding. And that's, that's the way to look at it rather than, I'm going to put away my toys and never come out again. You know, you've just got to carry on. So I'd say, ca just carry on. And the final question, the next stage, what does the future hold for Murray Lupkin Young? Well, a sunseeker yacht. Um... <laughs> the near future or the... <laughs> No, no, I don't think I, I wouldn't even 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 if that did happen, I don't think I'd take that opportunity. No, um, just I, I think the thing for me is um, a great line that Bruce Robinson, who wrote with Nell and I, said to me years ago when I was sort of standing there in the midst of all that sort of um, publicity, was um, just do your work, just do your work, and everything else will take care of itself. So I just want to do my work, you know. I just want I've got um, I've been writing movies for. 
quite a few years now and I've got a couple in the pipeline. I've got a musical theatre project, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've got a couple of new books, just made a, um, uh, an album of the Rattlesham Mumps with um, Arun Ghosh. I've been working with um, Lou Edmonds from Public Image Limited on a, on a sort of punk poetry album, which we're all quite excited about. So I'm just trying to just keep working, keep, keep the, uh, the productivity. Um, I need to perform more. Um, so I'm so I'm doing that now, which is good, and uh, and just 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 keep it flowing through the pipe because I think and that's another great piece of advice I was given is, uh, you know, you what was it was it was it was a Guinness analogy that was the best the best pint of Guinness is served by the establishment that has the most going through the pipe. So I believe that is a way you know this. If you write a hundred poems, you're going to get thirty good ones. You're going to get. 10 really good ones, you can get five amazing ones, you can get three hits. And that's kind of, so you're panning for gold. And I think the thing is to keep going. Mark E. Smith from The Fall was a great uh, um, advocate of that. And, and, I, and I think, yeah, just keep it moving. That's what I'm going to try and do. Brilliant. So that was the stages of my life. How did you find these questions? Good, really interesting. Yeah. And um, it was it was quite nice to uh, to to reflect on on a few things and uh, and hopefully there was something in enough there was some stuff in there that would be interesting to your listener stroke viewers absolutely now as a special treat i believe you might be able to do some poetry for us oh yes yeah of course well this is uh, so uh, we're, we're doing the the rattlesham mumps here and we're also doing the um we're doing an evening performance as well which is going to have my you know this, all my stuff from over the years um stand-up show but i'll do a piece from the Rattlesham Mumps, which is um, it's a 6,000 word um, iambic pentameter verse poem. I won't do all 6,000 words, but I'll give you the intro. And The podcast isn't that long. So. <laughs> no. Well, so, the, so the, in, the, the story is of a, it's a, it's a seven-year-old boy who inherits this huge house and, uh, and he goes back and it's empty apart from a hundred-year-old butler. And so I'll give you the... And then the butler says to him, isn't it strange how your family died in such mysterious circumstances? So I'll give it to you. I'll give you the, a little bit of the prologue. And then I guess I'll just keep going. And then you can fade it out when you get into your edit, when you've had enough. All right. Now, welcome, dear friends, to this sinister tale. Welcome the wind and the brutalist hail. See the black mare and the blackest of plume. See the glass coach and the bleak floral bloom. See the fine lace and the fluttering stall. See the twin coffin descending the hole, chilling the marrow with famishing cold of a strange little boy only seven years old. Seven years old, seven years old, he was ripped like a lamb from the warmth of the cold breeches of red with a curl in his hair thrust to the fore like a pig at a fair. Down with them, down with them, down with them, down, mother and father, deep into the ground. And Crispin de Quincy de Kenilworth clumps on this day became master of the Rattlesham mumps. Murray Lachlan Young performs at the Norwich Playhouse on Saturday, the 27th of April. That's the end of our show this month. Thanks to Mark Morris Dance Group, Nigel Pierce, Jane Asher, and Murray Lucklin Young. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let us know what you liked and what you want to hear 
in future episodes. Thank you very much for listening to Interval, the Norwich Theatre Royal podcast. <laughs>